Welcome into the first episode of the Sun Devil Source Podcast. What a better time to start than Camp Tauntazona alongside publisher Chris Cartman and recruiting analyst and big board curator Kevin Stewart. I'm your host and editor, Carrie Crowley. Guys, thanks for joining us. Excited to get this podcast going. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, definitely great to finally have a podcast. Well, Camp T, we thought would be the right time to start this podcast. We thought we'd have one more day up here, but a few hours ago, ASU alerted everyone that it would be going home back to Tempe. The field at Camp Tontazona, unplayable. The Sun Devils electing not to go to Rumsey Park for the third out of four days that they were scheduled to be here at Camp T. So my first question for you guys, with everyone going home, is this a good idea to keep this tradition going, Chris? So yesterday we went to Tonazona, um, and just for that first practice, you could just tell right away if you have any experience coming up here, as we have for probably a decade or so now, that the field was just in bad shape. They had a lot of rain the previous Sunday where it flooded out, and then from then till now they've had rain almost every single day. Um, it, and that's the way it is up here sometimes. It's hit or miss. We saw guys slipping over the field. I can recall one year back, um, Dirk Cutter, in the middle of his tenure, where they had probably six to eight guys, n- not an exaggeration, that suffered ankle sprains, uh, a couple high ankles. Guys were out for an extended period of time. It's just not worth the risk of doing that and putting those guys in that situation. I think Todd Graham was frustrated today just with the, the fact that they were probably going to have to do this. But I do think it was the right move. I think uh, Rumsey Park, I mean, the field at Rumsey Park gave them a lot more options this year than they had in the past, but I think the biggest thing for them is to get the team ready, the secondary team building aspects. I don't want to say they're overrated, but I think people make a little more out of them than is really there. Like, you hear about the players don't have cell phones, don't have internet. <laughs> we're walking out yesterday, we see about 10 guys on their phones and on laptops. Yeah, they, were, the re- cabin, they were retweeting so, a lot you know, of stuff today. I know yeah, that. So, you know. The kids are still doing some of the stuff they could do back down in Tempe. I mean, you can make the case they could get in a hotel and practice, do a lot of the same team building stuff down in Tempe. But there is a certain element of coming up here that you can't replicate. Yeah, I down mean, you in the valley. The, you go to the Mount Cush as a team, hiking that thing, or uh, go to the Tillman Rock and what some of those guys have done. Todd Graham himself jumped off uh, and into the water there. And th- those things are once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, um, you know, for, for, for players for that first initial experience and having to learn the fight song and all the things that they do. But does that outweigh uh, injuries and not being able to have your walkthroughs, which they've already um, put, put them a little bit behind to start camp? It, it's definitely better that it's at the outset of camp that you have that than in the middle of it. But nonetheless, it's really football at the end of the day that matters. And at the same time, Camp T was a little more feasible this year because Rumsey Park, where the team has yeah. gone to practice in the past when the field at Camp Tontazona has been rained out and been soaked, unplayable. Rumsey Park got a $500,000 upgrade, a turf field that really made conditions nice for the past few days. It's great. you know. And the problem is logistically you can't support several thousand fans watching it in that type of an environment. I mean, even today with a few dozen cars there, it was, it was a packed situation and uh, just not very conducive to that. And so for people that were thinking, well, why didn't they just have it at Rumsey Park or why didn't they just have it at a local high school? That's actually against the rules. Um, even if you'd moved it to like the soccer stadium, like the final spring practice, you still have weather concerns at ASU. Either you're going to probably have it be 100 plus degrees, which you haven't been practicing in, or you're going to maybe have monsoon situations in the valley as well. So I just I understand it. It's a difficult thing to cancel the scrimmage, and it's something that hasn't really 
really been done hardly at all. But when you're thinking about the safety of your players and what you're really trying to do, which is prepare a football team, it just probably was the right decision. Rain is always an issue at, tam- at Camp T, but Todd Graham has said he'd love to spend two weeks up here if he could. It's just not feasible with the conditions. He says that the showers are too tight for the players. They built the the places where the players stay back in, what, the 1960s? Yeah, it's 40 years old. Yeah, he, he was talking the other day how the linemen were 50 pounds underweight then compared to how they are now, and it's just very difficult to feed an entire right. football team the way it is. So the next question is, how long can this tradition continue? How long can ASU continue to come to Camp T, and is it feasible? Well, they did make some upgrades with the Internet and some of their technology this year, which enabled them to start here, which is what Graham wanted to do. Um, those guys have summer school classes that they're finishing up and you need in today's day and age the access to all the things that they use to turn in their papers and 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 do their their work um so that was a benefit but the problem is is as you referenced their sleeping quarters their refrigeration trucks that are needed meeting rooms all the technology they use catapult uh, th- these things are not compatible with such an outdated uh, uh, location. We're talking about probably a 20 to $30 million overhaul of Camp Tanazona from the people that I've talked to at ASU. And when you have a huge stadium project that you're working on and that takes priority and then they have Wells Fargo Arena, which needs to be redone or replaced, you just can't put that much of a priority when it's you're talking about a handful of practices or maybe a week. And so uh, ultimately... It is going to be a decision that they're going to have to contemplate on a year-to-year basis uh, of whether or not it's really worth it. Um, And as Kevin talked about earlier, the benefits versus um, the things that are potential drawbacks. It's a beautiful thing to be up here, and it's a unique setting in college football, but then there's a downside to it that can definitely rear its head as it did this week. And one thing, the first year that when Todd Graham brought it back, it was five days. And then they cut it down, it was after the second year, to uh, four. And is it possible we could see three moving forward? Cut down the number of days that come up here. You know, It's a definite possibility. I mean, when you consider the weather, the conditions, it's just hard. But the, the team-building aspects, like you said, they can be overrated at times, but they really do believe in it. I mean, De- Dennis Erickson in 2007, in his first year, came here. The weather was great that year. They had a great season, 10 wins. And he still decided they weren't coming back in 2008. And it, it's not like the facilities have been upgraded since then. Same field, same living quarters, same challenges. And at this point, you have to wonder, is Todd Graham going to start feeling that way too? Yeah, he said, I'd love to come up for two weeks. Well, that's, that sounds nice. And maybe you do, from an emotional standpoint, want that. But then when you get up here and you have practice canceled, early as they did today, even at Rumsey Park on the all-weather field because of lightning in the area. And when the guys are fixing the field at Tanazona while you're actually practicing, that just creates some huge logistical hurdles. And speaking of Todd Graham, we saw him in a different light this week a little bit. Three days and talking to the media, he was maybe a little bit more subdued. We did not hear that this was the best fall camp in ASU history. We did not hear that it was the best incoming class and it was the best Tuesday, Thursday practices. Do you think that the impact of Ray Anderson's talk with Graham about toning down the rhetoric a little bit has, has changed Graham in the way that he's interacting with the media? 
I think that's definitely a big part of it. How could it not be? And and then I also would say just knowing that you have all these new coaches, a new coordinator, a new quarterback, you have the youngest offensive line uh, in in the Pac-12 from a uh, game starting standpoint, you have to have a lower expectation level. And I think Ray Anderson, with some of the comments that he made in the offseason in some interviews, um, had made, made it clear that's kind of what he wants anyways, uh, just – um, lower expectations, but still the same level of enthusiasm on the field and the same approach. And Todd Graham said, look, our goals are not changing. We have them on, written on our wall. We're going to try to win, uh, go undefeated. We're going to try to win a Rose Bowl. We're going to try to win a national championship, play in the playoff, all those things. That doesn't change, but uh, from an external standpoint, how you communicate with your fans through the media is, I think, where Ray Anderson uh, wanted some change, and we have seen to this point uh, a definitely more muted Todd Graham. He hasn't been prone to any of the superlative talk that we've tended to see in the past. A lot of hyperbole, much different. Yeah, and coming off last year, I don't think the same rhetoric would have played with fans. I mean, you look at the last three years, the team was pre- predicted to be one of the contenders in the South, and that is not the case this year. So, I think, I mean, Graham himself probably might have muted himself a little bit to a degree anyways outside of what Anderson said, but it, obviously that's probably part of the factoring and changing the way he's talking and addressing the media. And Camp Tonsazona a little different this year as well. Todd Graham's speak, speech a little different, and that's because ASU came here in the first few days of fall camp. You guys are used to coming up here every season and watching the Sun Devils in their second third week of preseason camp and the days that we get to see full evaluation of the team, the, te- the practices that are open to the fans and the media in their entirety, two of them were in shells. It's really been a big evolution in nationally how media has been uh, treated with regard to policy and, and practices, and you're seeing it at ASU. Uh, gone really are the days when practices were fully open. I can recall under Dennis Erickson watching every single minute of practice from the first spring practice all the way all the way through their bowl practices, never leaving the field. ASU has two practice fields outside. We would stroll in between the two <laughs> fields, yeah. uh, reporting on everything that was going on. And then um, as his tenure wore on, it got more restrictive. And then uh, Todd Graham had it more open when he started. And I think it's you're, you're trying, trying to build that rapport with your fans and connect with people and, and give media access that helps you. Um, but this spring, there was more restrictions than we've ever seen. We used to always be able to watch everything. Even when they cut down fall practices um, in previous years, spring was still pretty much wide open. You could film everything. You could put it up. And this year was different. And part of that is they, they made some changes defensively, some schematic things that they, they don't want to reveal. And I think coaches don't want to feel like they're at a competitive disadvantage to their peers in the conference and so when when everyone else is moving towards less and less access they feel pressure to do that as well and it's unfortunate um and, and certainly up here at Tonazona, to your question carrie um, the first two practices it's helmets only and we're just not seeing anywhere near as much as uh, we have in the past even really in previous years under coach graham when kevin and i've been here yeah, for me, um, this is like my one week a year to come up and really see the team. I don't get to go to practice every day during the, when they're down in Tempe. And I was anticipating it'd be a lot different. Being cut short, it was dramatically different. You know, didn't see as much 
from, um, you know, it was a lot more installation, a lot of basics. We didn't see a lot of scrimmaging, a lot of hitting, obviously, just today's first day in shells. So for me, it was a lot different this year than the past couple of years. It's not to say that that will always be the case. You could see reversing trends as, as teams and programs realize sure. that the media is kind of a bridge to the fan base, and you can learn a lot about these teams, about these players, and that there's a lot of value to be gained by being more open. But Graham said at Pac-12 Media Day, there's a large amount of turnover in coordinators in this conference, and ASU is a prime example. I mean, Keith Patterson is now have, now has full reign of the defensive play calls and audibles on the sidelines. Chip Lindsey, completely new face, and ASU feels it can't afford to have some of those new wrinkles get out. Yeah, it's just uh, when you contrast that against uh, NFL policy and media and things of that nature it's just odd because they allow more and yet those things can be more revealing I think at that level than, than even here and there's more of a capability to reveal so there is I hate to use the word paranoia but there is some um, concern that I think is not necessarily totally justified and I also would say to this point that it's really incumbent upon your coaching staff at a school like ASU um, and your 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 leadership at the athletic department level to cultivate that fan experience and the way that that's done is not just through your direct engagement with fans but also through uh, media practices that enable uh, fans to feel like they're getting a robust experience Uh, and so i think it's just important to to remind that uh, asu doesn't it's not like alabama Ohio (laughs) state michigan texas where you have to turn away people at your spring game when it costs ten dollars this is a place where if you get a few thousand people at your spring uh, game or you get a few thousand people at your camp tanazona scrimmage you're feeling great about it and uh, i think cultivating that as much as you possibly can without being at a disadvantage is really important Look, the media, for the most part, is not going to report on the double reverse pass that your team is working on at practice. They're more concerned about you know, letting, guy, letting fans know what Chase Lucas and Nikhil Harry look like in, in, in pads so that they can have realistic expectations for their teams. But speaking of what those guys look like in pads, let's get to football. Finally, wow. ASU was on the field for a few days, and we did have a great chance to look at the players, and we have to start with the quarterback battle. First battle since 2012 when Todd Graham arrived, and that fall when they were beginning fall camp, Taylor Kelly was, in Graham's eyes, probably the third quarterback behind Mike Bercovici and Michael Eubank, and Kelly ended up winning the job, and right now, I mean, ASU saying that Manny Wilkins, Brady White, and Bryce Perkins are all on an even playing field, but when you look at the reps and how those guys have produced over the first few days of practices. Manny Wilkins seems like quarterback 1A right now. You have to say that. And we've uh, had our new intern, Evan Sider, who's been doing a bang-out job, just making sure to uh, tally everything from the quarterback position. Um, Manny Wilkins has thrown 25 times with the 11-on-11 or 7-on-7 skeleton, as they call it. Uh, Brady White's thrown 13 times, and Bryce Perkins is, is thrown 16 times. When they had the newcomers and veterans split on the first two days of practice, Manny Wilkins was the only guy um, who was working on both of those days. Bryce Perkins and, and uh, Brady White split that. Uh, so I think, and understandably so, uh, just given that he's an older guy, he's got that extra year of experience. I don't think he did anything necessarily to, to hurt his cause or put him behind the eight ball in spring ball, you, you would have to say that Manny Wilkins uh, 
is deserving of getting kind of a little bit more opportunity here and someone's going to have to take it away from him. My overall thoughts through just three days, which is such a brief period of time, is nobody has no, uh, taken no, taken no. this job in any way, shape, or form. It's something that's going to have to be evaluated, not just probably in the next few days or, or weeks. Um, my sentiment is that this may go into the season, and there's nothing wrong with that. We're not talking about an ASU team that's headed for playing January this year. I, I don't think so. And so it's much more important to get the right quarterback for the job, given the fact that we're talking about a sophomore and a couple of redshirt freshmen. And if that takes playing a couple guys in NAU or even against Texas Tech um, or UTSA, I, I think that it would be smart to do it. And I just don't see enough separation or enough of a, a comfort level as far as what ASU should have to, to, uh, you know, to make any sort of determination on that right now. And one of the interesting factors in this quarterback battle is Todd Graham has said that he wants the quarterback who's going to engage the other 10 players on the field. And he said within the first three to four practices, you should be able to tell who that leader is. And Kevin, it's just not apparent yeah, at all. I, I can't say Wilkins has separated himself at all. I mean, White's played about as well as Wilkins. I think White and Wilkins have separated from Perkins to a degree. I thought Perkins looked good the first day when we saw him throwing. His mechanics looked better. But today when they were in a little 11-on-11, kind of regressed a little. So I would say those two are kind of pulling away from Perkins at this time, but it's still early. But then you three look, days in. But then you look at the stats, and we, we have uh, Bryce Perkins completing 12 of 16 throws. And granted, it's not like they're making a bunch of explosive plays all over the field because they're definitely not. But at least he's managing yeah. the offense and making some pretty good decisions given the fact that he's completing a lot of, a lot of passes. And – do we see anybody who, from an intangible standpoint, is out there commanding and leading? I no. don't see that whatsoever. No. No. I just don't. So I see guys who are kind of in their own element, competing in the way that they feel like they should be competing. But this thing is, in my opinion, a long way away from being decided and a long way away from having any level of confidence that ASU has a good quality Pac-12 starter right now. We are watching this competition 11 on 11 and then 7 on 7. We're breaking things down so that if we do have a situation where there's a past Skelly All-American where a guy is just tearing it up against 7 on 7 but then falling apart when he's in front of a rush, we'll be able to evaluate that as well. So it's going to be an interesting competition. And Kevin, what, what do you think you've seen through the first three days that you'll continue to look for? Um, I, I want to see Brady White just kind of – make that leap. He's the one I feel out of the three that, make, that makes the progressions that's trying to read the defense, but he seems like he's maybe, I don't know, say hesitant, but he's not taking charge when he's out there as much as I think he could. And I feel like, to me, I've always felt that Wilkins might start the season as a starter and White could replace him at some point if he doesn't play well. Still kind of feel that way. I feel just White just has a little more command of the pocket the offense to a degree. He's not a one-read guy and take off like we've seen in the past from some of the other guys. You know, Manny Wilkins is a really good athlete, but in order to really maximize that, you have to be able to evade the rush to throw the ball, not just ev- not just tuck and run. His eyes come down so much, and he tends to um, be a one-read quarterback. I- I think he has potential, but then you also see, even though he has a good arm, his accuracy down the field has been kind of uh, uncertain. He had a couple opportunities today to Jalen Harvey, 
um, on deep fades where he overthrew the ball when, when Harvey had beaten Kareem Orr. So it is about managing the offense at the end of the day. We haven't seen too many penalties, but we also haven't seen – I think there's been seven explosive plays in three practices. That's really not a lot. And um, even though their, com- their completion percentages have been fine, the ball security has been fine, we haven't seen a rash of interceptions or anything like that. I think those are positives. But I, I, I just think, again – that this thing is something we'll be talking about on the next podcast and the next one <laughs> and, and the, the one next after one yeah, yeah. for for a while. And the one before the USC game and <laughs> oh, wow. no, I don't no. think that would be something that the coaches would be happy with. No. Yeah. But I know I would never rule it out though. Yeah. No. yeah. So let's let's quickly go through these quarterbacks and maybe give a one sentence summary of what you've seen so far. Manny Wilkins, Kevin. Athletic. Uh, arm looks good on the shorter throws, but as Chris mentioned down the field he still seems to be struggling i like him in skeleton and then 11 on 11 comes and i I think there may be some missed opportunities in the passing game either from just not getting the ball where it needs to be uh, down the field or just not identifying your open second third progression and and bringing your eyes down and, and negating to some degree your athleticism i think manny wilkins has watched a lot of chip Lindsay's southern miss film and yeah. he's throwing to his backs and throwing to the quick outs and getting those completions Thanks. kevin brady white patient like i said earlier he's you know he's making his reads he's making his progressions if anything maybe needs to become a little more assertive take a little more chances a uh, greater sense of urgency is needed but it's a double-edged sword between trying to wait to find the open receiver and taking negative plays, and I think he hasn't found the right balance of that yet. I think he's the guy who's the best at going through the progressions, but like you said, needs to maybe hasten the decision-making. Bryce Perkins, Kevin. Potential. It's still there with him. Uh, His mechanics are better. Like you said, he regressed a little today, Uh, but I felt better about him two days ago or watching him throw than I did at any point last year about him staying a quarterback. I mean, everyone's going to always talk about moving him to a different position. That might still be in the works, but I don't think it would happen this year. He's fast. He's strong. He's been a late bloomer that's been kind of counted out from a recruiting standpoint as a quarterback, Uh, obviously working hard on the mechanics of it, and I think he really wants to be a quarterback. You see, even though he is somebody who's fast and a great athlete, he wants to be a, a passer of the football. I don't know if there's going to be enough time but he is overhauling his mechanics. I think his desire to compete stands out because he was definitely 1C after spring practice, and the dedication with the mechanics is is something that can separate him. So are you saying, just put you on the spot right now, are you saying that he could be a Taylor Kelly in that regard? I, th- I think so because I think he also is willing to engage the other 10 guys on the field, maybe more so. So if it's a dead heat and, they, and the coaches see that the – receivers and the offensive line are responding to Bryce Perkins that could make a big difference interesting okay Dylan Sterling Cole we have not mentioned him yet he's the new recruit from Texas four-star quarterback Kevin one of the strongest arms we've I've seen at an ASU camp and we've been doing this for a while um Andrew Walter type arm Barack Osweiler type arm he's got to harness it a little more he was overthrowing some receivers today but he looks good he looks the part uh, has all the tools, needs to progress from a maturity standpoint and understanding what it takes to be a leader as well as a effective quarterback on and off the field at this level. The quarterback that wins the job in 2016 better play well enough. 
to win the job in 2017 because Sterling Cole has all the tools to be there, in my opinion. I agree with that. All right, let's move on past the quarterback competition. It's something that we will touch on throughout the preseason. Let's talk about newcomers who've made an impression so far. Chris, the class of 2016 is all here, save for Doug Suttle, who we will not know about for another few weeks or so. But let's talk about the guys that we have seen on the field. They put on shoulder pads today. Who look good? I have to say, Kron Crump is one of the best athletes. Uh, I think he probably needed to gain a little bit more weight in order to try to become a, a base down player right now. He looks like a great sub package pass rusher. Very explosive. Is he going to be able to handle the run? Is he going to be able to drop and cover and do some things that make him versatile? Uh, I think from the freshman. We mentioned Dylan Sterling Cole. He's certainly looks the part and has the arm. Um, and then Nikhil Harry, I think, is probably the one freshman who has a really good chance of seeing the field this year. Uh, he got w- at least one first-team rep uh, in, in today and Friday's practice as we're taping this. Uh, and then um, after that, I think Cole Cabral uh, is a guy who Todd Graham mentioned as a standout. We had talked about him the day previously. For 6'5 and 285 pounds, he bends and moves really well. I think he's got the ability to play multiple offensive line positions, probably all of them. He's he's a long snapper who's got um, a lot of velocity on that ball getting back, but it's not not that consistent <laughs> right now. A ton of velocity. Though. Yeah, there's some issues there. Um, and then Chase Lucas, I think, uh, even though he, he's only 155 pounds or so, he's shown some some really good movement skills, and I think after a redshirt year, he's got a chance. Robbie Robinson is a guy who I don't know that he has a high ceiling, as we've talked about kind of off the show, but uh, but he maybe has the ability to go in there and play in nickel situations right now. Kevin, I think Chris stole our thunder yeah, a bit, but yeah. if you want to expand on yeah, some Rob- of those guys. Yeah, Robbie Robinson is someone I could see playing this year. Um, things might have to fall right for that, or maybe some guys maybe fail. fall wrong. Yeah, better way of putting a fail above him. I could see him being a contributor in the nickel. He's a battler, plays man-to-man. They need guys to play man-to-man if Todd Graham's going to be blitzing in this system. He could be someone you could see in nickel packages making plays. You know, we'll see. Uh, I thought Chase Lucas had a better day today than he did the day before. It's still got a long way to go. I personally don't see him playing this year unless he makes a big leap in the next couple of weeks. Just physically, I don't think he's there yet. And he hasn't played a lot of cornerback or really any until he got to here this weaker so still a long way to go with him um Cole Cabral maybe could play this year but I tend to doubt it there probably have to be some injuries maybe at center especially for that to happen but the thing about Cole Cabral is you almost never mention a true freshman lineman as a possibility to play so just the fact that we could have that discussion says a lot about the shape and physicality that he brings to the table already Kevin, you were mentioning earlier you like uh, what you've seen from the wide receivers who are freshmen oh, so far yeah definitely Nikhil Harry Brings that outside playmaking ability that they didn't have last year with Jalen Strong with the, some of the size. Um, the freshman receiver class is pretty impressive. Kyle Williams looks like someone that's going to be a slot player. Probably not this year, but yeah. some of them when Tim White leaves could maybe take over that role. Um, you look at some of the walk-ons look pretty good, too. Uh, Chaz Collins was making some plays early. ML Harris had a good day the other day. Jeremy Smith is a big outside receiver that's got a chance. I mean, I want to touch on Robinson one more time because you and I had this discussion today that his his ceiling's never going to be that high because of his, his height, but 
in the one-on-one drills that we saw, and we focused a lot on that today between the receivers and the corners, maybe Gump Hayes had a better day of sticking with his man. Mm. But aside from that, yeah. Robinson was probably the best true cover corner. Yeah, and he was he got some reps with the twos. I don't think he got any reps with the ones. No. But, yeah, his, he's a guy four years from now that might not be much better than he is right now, but he's coming in. He at can a, help the team. He's coming in at high level, and he fits a role. It's well, something that he's not going to have to develop into something. He's kind of already there as a nickel-type corner. We know ASU's thin and unproven at those cornerback spots. So just based on that alone, he's going to probably get an opportunity. Um, even when he was in phase and pinned with some of these receivers, though, Nikhil Harry caught a ball over yeah. him. We saw today that happen again. I forgot who the receiver was. I think it was Cam Smith. Cam Smith made, he, yeah. Cam Smith made a tremendous catch He made catch a great catch. That but that, but that's, that's, that's football at this level. I mean, yeah. you are going to have guys – in the Pac-12, who are going to make plays on your undersized uh, DBs. And that's why a 5'8 cornerback, you just don't see a lot of them who are really successful. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to get an opportunity. doesn't mean he doesn't have a chance. He definitely has some things that are really promising, but it's something that we're going to have to just kind of see how that unfolds. Well, we know that cornerback is a group where Robinson may have an opportunity. Chase Lucas, you probably stand to benefit from redshirting him just because he's got a high ceiling. He can he can really grow into a comfortable contributor at this level. But it's definitely a position group where ASU has some concerns right now, especially after last season, over 337 yards per game, allowed one of the top five worst passing defenses the last decade in college football. But what are some of the other position groups that you guys think ASU really needs to focus on honing in in camp and looking for guys that are going to compete and contribute? There's just no history of teams that don't have good offensive lines being really good football teams. And we're talking about uh, an ASU team that returns one starter, and that starter, Evan Goodman, is somebody who's – not looked at as an anchor in any way, shape, or form by fans. I mean, he had more false starts than, than probably all the other starting linemen combined last year. There's been questions about his motivation. Now, it is true that uh, coaches have said a lot of great things about him in the offseason. Sean Griswold said he's turned the quarter. He's been more of a leader. But that offensive line thus far in three practices has in no way, shape, or form demonstrated that it's ready to compete at the highest Pac-12 level. You have a, a walk-on center who's not even really been heavily challenged by anybody else other than if you move a another scholarship player who's a starter to that position. So Tyler McClure, is he going to work out as a center? Are you going to have to move Stephon McCray? You have these young uh, redshirt freshmen who have a lot of promise, Zach Robertson and Steve Miller, but are those guys ready? Quinn Bailey as a, as, as a right tackle is someone who has struggled against speed. We saw today Kron Crump, Malik Lawal give him problems. JoJo Wicker is going to give everybody problems. and I, So I just think that's far and away outside of the secondary the biggest concern that, a, that ASU has right now. Yeah, offensive line is definitely a uh, Goodman. I thought he was a little better today, but has not shown the leap that we heard about. Uh, Sam Jones is someone I feel good about moving forward. After that, it's a, it's a lot of question marks. I don't think Quinn Bailey's looked that good. Zach Robertson hasn't impressed me too much, but there's a lot a lot of potential there. He could be someone that maybe jumps into the starting five at some point. We saw him working at right guard today and McCray moving over to center. Are we going to see more of that moving forward? There's guys got to step up and guys got to emerge. There's not a lot of talent behind them ready to go either it's a lot of newcomers a lot of juco's that 
haven't shown a lot yet. So it's going to be incumbent on the top five or six guys to really step up and improve their play. Yeah, finding that right combination of five players is going to be difficult, and that's like the quarterback battle, probably not going to be settled until the end of fall camp. But the position group, I think that is kind of underrated in terms of uh, its its potential concern is the safety group yes. because you've got two guys coming off injuries and in Laiu Mokiola, who hasn't played safety in a few seasons, and Armand Perry, who's coming off an ankle injury last year. And behind those two players, ASU does not have much. No. And you've got James Johnson, who's really struggled in his in-game showings through the years. Chad Adams is on the field right now. And I, we saw Colton Gerhardt today. It looked like they were perhaps trying him at linebacker and nickel packages, and he's played safety in the past. So if you do have an injury in the secondary, all of a sudden things become really thin for ASU, and you could have another situation where you have to rush five or six guys on every play in hopes of getting to the quarterback and disrupting opponents' passing games in that in that manner. Yeah, or what we've seen from Todd Graham in the past is, oh, I have to move this guy from this position to this position. So now you, all of a sudden you see Creamore back to safety. If one of those guys goes down, which Mokiola, of course, could at any, at any time, uh, and then that causes a problem at cornerback. So you plug one leak, and then another one springs pretty easily. That's just the reality of ASU secondary. You look at last year, Todd Graham said, well, we were killed by the injuries to Mokiola and Armand Perry. Well, everybody has injuries. You have to be able to step up and overcome those. Now, what position groups are the are the position strengths? What are what are the opposite of those where they can maybe overcome an injury or two? What can ASU lean on heading into this season, Kevin? The running backs; those are the two best playmakers on offense, besides Tim White. You know, Balaj is a backup; is probably their second, third best playmaker. Demario Richards going to be valuable in the passing game. Uh, that's there's that's her strength right there. Jason Lewis was a highly touted recruit. He's about fourth on the depth chart right now. So there's a depth there. That's where they got the most talent at the top. Fourth on the depth chart, but Nick Ralston looked good today. Yeah, I did. mean, Nick yeah. Ralston is a guy who was a two-star recruit, wasn't thought of highly, and came in, played as a true freshman because probably doesn't have a high ceiling. They realized they can get something out of him, and he broke a touchdown run today where he hit the hit the corner of the field and just broke loose. Nick Ralston is actually a little bit like Demario Richard. He's a yeah. inside yeah. zone runner. He's lost 20 pounds or so to get himself into great shape. I think he needed that. He, it was kind of a, in a tweener role as a freshman where they weren't sure how they, exactly they were going to utilize him. And I, I, running back is really so important because we've seen Chip Lindsey at Southern Miss – use those guys so extensively in the passing game and two, two 1,000 yard rushers, which you're almost never going to see that in college football. Uh, he was able to get that. And, 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 and really that's what we've seen from ASU and ASU's offense has been successful. Look back to Marion Grice, DJ Foster, when Cameron when, Marshall, was Cameron part of Marshall, that yeah. when, when ASU has been successful, it, it it's when it's been able to throw the ball a lot to its backs and its tight ends. Uh, you go to Chris, Chris, Chris Coyle, Coyle. uh, and and there were times when ASU didn't even have good receiving core, and yet they were really able to put a lot of points on the board, and that's why. Now, I, I happen to think ASU's wide receivers might be better than anticipated this year. We know that Tim White's one of the best players on the team. He, uh, in my in my opinion, was the number one offensive uh, showing uh, for the first three days up here at Camp Tonazona. But, but Cam Smith, I think he shows that he's kind of close to being all the way back. And then Jalen Harvey has been 
uh, really outstanding so far. So there's there's a lot a lot there to like. Jalen Harvey's a grinder. I mean, you yeah. watch you watch him in practice. He's going to set blocks on the edge. Cam Smith's going to set blocks on the edge. I mean, that that could help this offensive line when when ASU goes to its outside zone plays that Chip Lindsey loves to run. You've got a back in Balage who's just ideally suited to run those plays. If you get the the left side sealed off with maybe Evan Goodman, Cody Cole, and maybe a block from Cam Smith, you've got guys who who can run the ball that way. And you I can't. think. I'm- Thing on that run you talked from, about on Ralston, it was Ellis Jefferson who sprung yeah. him with a good block, and we saw Jay Norvell working with the wide receivers a lot today on their blocking, and yeah. that's something that ASU really going back to when <laughs> Dennis Erickson got to ASU or, or Noel Bazzoni has struggled with blocking on the outside. Yeah, we saw Jay Norvell talking to Nikhil Harry uh, about having a wide base, making sure that you have your hands located properly inside. Uh, all these things, and Nikhil Harry was probably like, oh, I didn't come here to do that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, to, to underline this point, people don't think about receivers in terms of their value from a blocking standpoint. It's just something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Cam Smith was a phenomenal blocker, and he created so many opportunities for other ASU players to get him back to where he could do that, to get a Jalen Harvey, who's certainly uh, one of the scrappiest guys on the roster. I totally agree it's going to give you great opportunities. And we haven't even talked about just mentioning – Position strengths. I mean, you got to look at ASU's linebacking yeah, core, no doubt, and just their front seven overall. That's really, to me, is the the strength of their their defense. You have JoJo Wicker, uh, who's fantastic. Tayshawn Smallwood continues to make strides. Salamo Fizo, Christian Sam, and DJ Calhoun as linebackers. You just have a lot of your best players in that front seven. And I, th- I think going back to the wide receivers, one of the reasons that we think it's maybe an underrated group, and it'll have a a, a unit that has a strong season is the presence of Jay Norvell because he's a position coach that in the first three days, the technical aspects that he has already brought to that group are just phenomenal. He's an unbelievable wide receivers coach. I think it comes down to uh, how you're able to articulate things in a way that players understand. Frank Cush uh, told me one time that his mentor, Dan Devine, uh, said, every single player learns in a different way. And if you don't know how to teach them in, in the way that is tailored for them and motivate them in the way that's tailored for them, you're not going to maximize your player. And there's a lot of coaches who certainly know what they're talking about. They know the game at a high level, but do you have the ability to demonstrate it? Do you have the ability to tell people? Do you have the ability to show people in ways that get them to understand all of these things? Jane Norvell has those, has that in spades. Now we're going to make a quick transition here and talk about some of the newcomers once again, but this time we're going to focus on the junior college situation. Of the 25 recruits ASU brought in, 10 had to come from the junior college level, and you've got a few guys who look like they can tri- they can contribute, but when you talk junior college recruiting, you're talking immediate impact type of players, and Kevin, through the first three days of camp, it doesn't look like ASU has a whole lot of guys who are ready to step in and fill the gaps that, quite frankly, ASU was counting on them to fill. No doubt. Offensive line, cornerback positions we've talked about, they have question marks. They heavily addressed in the junior college class, which was ranked as the number one one in the country and hasn't really lived up to that at all. I, I don't see any of the three JUCO offensive linemen playing this year at this point. I mean, things could change, but right now all three of them look way behind. Uh, the cornerbacks, we haven't seen Maurice Chandler at all. Uh, Jamarcus Rhodes, kind of a mixed bag. Might not even be, personally, in my opinion, I kind of think he might be better off yeah. in safety. We so, like Jamarcus Rhodes as a safety. Yes. Um, 
you know, then you go down. Some of the other guys have looked better. Crump, Crump, excuse me, needs to add weight, but he's someone that can make some plays this year. Uh, Dion Gennard is someone that might not play this year, but has impressed. It's someone they got after signing day, so he's a positive, but it's it's not looking good overall for the ten guys they brought in. I like Winyard the way he looks, but I, I wonder if he's a little bit redundant to Marcus Ball uh, from a style standpoint. Uh, I think it's definitely a, a concern that you have to have when you see 10 junior college players and in your first week of camp, you see one guy who might be able to be a starter in Karan Crump. And even him, we're talking about uh, definitely a good pass rusher who's going to be able to get out there on third downs. But is he going to be able to be a base down player? I'm not sure about that yet. You have some guys who are four for three guys who have potential. I think that's, as we've talked about, that yeah. there's some value in that. It's okay. I mean, uh, Nick Kelly didn't play early in his career. Raymond Epps. Raymond Epps didn't play early in, the, in his career. And those, those guys redshirted, and they were ready later on. But you're, you're trying to bridge the gap, fill some holes that you have to make this team better. And I don't see a whole lot of that right now on the roster. And there's also the potential for a handful of these guys to not work out at all. And that's, that's really an issue. In, in the past, the years that ASU surprised, you could look to guys like Chris Young, Demarius Randall, Jalen Strong coming in and making big impacts. Marion Grice. Marion Grice. I, I don't think we see any of these 10 making anything close to what those guys did in their first year. I mean, the ultimate wild card is if ASU does get Doug Suttle on yes. campus, can he play and make an impact? Because that could completely change the trajectory yeah. of this class. It, it can't make up for the fact that you're going to maybe lose – four or five guys who won't be able to contribute at all and will have to take a red shirt this year. But if Suttle comes onto campus and lives up to the expectations, he could change the narrative. Yeah, the, the question really becomes, um, how did ASU get Doug Suttle, right? And, yeah. and yeah. Florida State came hard kind of at the end, but Auburn. did it really want him, did Auburn? Usually you're going to have the guys who are the academic question marks, who are the ones that you get at ASU because you have to take a little bit more of a gamble. And we've seen that. Uh, Jalen, in, Jalen Strong was similar. Yes. Yeah. The ASU's actually had some success at getting some of those guys. And then you look at the Dalvin Stuckies and uh, you look at uh, uh, Durant, oh, well. Davon Durant, who had some off-the-field stuff that the ASU kind of overlooked and they got were able to get him in, but then it didn't work out. I think some of those gambles make make sense, but then if you don't get Doug Settle on campus and, and in your lineup – at a position where you really need some help, then signing him doesn't really count for anything. The other guy who we, we have not mentioned is Sleep Dalton, the punter. And with the way Matt Hawk has looked through two days of camp booting the ball, that's not going to be an open competition this year. And he's not someone that was really counted no. on coming in this year, and he's one of those four for three guys. Uh, he's looked good. Yeah. I mean, it's, he's someone that will be fine going forward, but they weren't counting on him for this year, unlike some of these other guys. And, and you could red, you were going to redshirt him, then he'll have a couple of years to play. Uh, Christian Hill is one of the most imposing physical specimens on the roster. Yeah. I mean, just incredible. <laughs> They're looking at him inside now as a three technique. I think he's going to be fine, but he probably needs a redshirt year. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, so there's just some situations where some of these guys probably will work out in a couple of years. But Todd Graham needs to win, if not this year, next year to really feel like they're getting back into the, the positive momentum 
of what they were doing in their first few years at ASU. And if these guys do redshirt and end up panning out, ASU is already setting up for a big 2017 season. I mean, you're going to have a second-year quarterback in theory. You should have at least one of the running backs back. The wide receiver core is going to be much deeper than we expected after the additions of Humphrey and Newsom over the past week or so. So yeah. We've long talked about on the sanctuary as 2017 being the year where it really sets up well for them as long as they hit on one of these quarterbacks. If they get good quarterback play, uh, I think the athleticism across the board is going to give them the opportunity. And um, so we'll have to see if they can just find that find that one guy. you got you got to have a quarterback. ASU hit the junior college recruiting ranks hard, the number one JUCO class, as Kevin said. But ultimately, the Sun Devils finished with the 30th ranked class in 2016 after finishing with the 17th ranked class nationally in both 2014 and 2015. So what's the reason for for that kind of decline in recruiting overall? And there were a ton of mid-year signees for ASU this year, which is something that it maybe didn't have in 2014, 2015. Yeah, what we saw at the end of the last cycle is really uh, unprecedented where ASU went from mid-January to signing day without adding a commitment. Mid-December. To jet, to yeah, mid, mid, sorry, mid-December, yeah, to signing day. A lot of that is directly due to the turnover in the coaching staff. Todd Graham did a good job of keeping the bulk of his staff together his first few years here, but that changed last year, and we saw, I mean, more than half the staff uh, replaced during that period, and that's a big reason why we saw so many JUCOs in this class. Yeah, historically, ASU's probably added a third of its commitments and signees from December through signing day. And so when you lose all these coaches, they're the ones who have spent the last year to two years recruiting guys. That just takes away your momentum in those recruitments. And uh, so that that was really costly. ASU didn't even trip hardly any guys like they had done in previous years in January as a result. Todd Graham knew that the day was going to come when he was going to replace Mike Norvell. But just the fact that he, ha- he lost uh, Bo Graham, which was unanticipated, and then not only uh, Mike Norvell, but Chip Long, Jackie uh, Ship, Jackie Ship. He lost like a lot of his better recruiters. Chris Ball was probably an underrated recruiter yes. and very involved uh, with the secondary, and, and some of the guys that they uh, weren't able to close on at the end of the process, um, I think, was a, a direct result of that. Byron Murphy was being recruited by Chris Ball really aggressively hadn't um, had as much dialogue with some of the other staff members. And, and so it just cost them. So ASU had really good recruiting classes. 2015 was probably the best I've seen ASU sign. 2016 definitely took a step back. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that now uh, circling back to what we talked about with the junior college class and, and players who are ready to, to compete right away. And one thing, this is, we'll catch up with them in future years. Right now I have them with 12 true freshmen on the roster. We talk about one or two of these guys playing this year. They could have 10 guys in this class moving forward. We're going to see a heavy JUCO class down the road if this keeps up. It's a self-fulfilling cycle. You take a lot of JUCOs, then those guys are out of your program in two years. You're not going to hit on all the freshmen that, that, that you sign. ASU signed 15 freshmen last year. Let's say that six or seven of those freshmen really work out at a high level you're going to be back in the same situation. So the whole key when you're doing this is to make sure that you really hit on your high school signees while you're taking these JUCO guys. You're being very selective there. And so you don't have this attrition and situation that that forces you to get into this vicious cycle of having to take JUCOs over and over and over again. And, and 
we'll save this for another podcast to really flesh it out more. But it it all comes back at the end of the day to recruiting successfully within your area and in your home state. That's that's essential. And Chip Lindsay told me on the point of recruiting those high school kids hard that keeping Dylan Sterling Cole in this class was difficult. And we talked about him as one of the top three physically gifted guys in this class already. So ASU was lucky to get Chip Lindsay in there early. He was the offensive coordinator for the bowl game, and that relationship ended up panning out for the Sun Devils. But they, they did have to add four guys after signing day, and recently they've added Humphrey and Newsom. So right. the Sun Devils clearly looking at guys who have a little bit of experience on the college level to add to the roster because they don't feel it's that deep right now. You don't really want to be having to take a half dozen guys after signing day to complete your next roster. Now, sometimes that works out. Terrell Chapman, I think he's got a chance to be a good player. Sure. And there's other guys that have, have been as well for ASU. And, Tim White. Yeah, Tim White. Davon Coleman a few years back. Right. So there's there you go. There's guys, and it's going to happen. Um, but it is – always a concern when you need to to go out and get a bunch of guys after signing day now we do need to say again Nikhil Harry Chase Lucas Dylan Sterling Cole they got some really good Cole Cabral Cole Cabral they got some really good high school guys that probably will work out and got some guys that could be star players down the road and as long as that happens that's going to help you to get to where your next place is and some of these new coaches that they added uh, help as well because mm-hmm. you have Jay Norvell who recruits Los Angeles. You have uh, Seo Malo, their defensive line coach who recruits the Inland Empire and a lot of Polynesian kids and a lot of local guys in Arizona. Uh, speaking of just talking about coaches and, and, and players and their family members really have a lot of good things to say about Chip Lindsey. And all of this, all, all of this recruiting talk leads ASU to needing a good class in 2017. We've talked about how the Sun Devils need to restock the roster. So we will get into the class of 2017 recruiting class in great detail on a premium podcast coming up. But right now we are going to do a quick overview, a quick preview of the class of 2017, specifically looking at how ASU's local standing is. Because, Chris, you said it's one of the keys to any successful college football program. You look at the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the Florida States of the world, and they are keeping the kids in their neighborhood at their schools. So, Kevin, how do the Sun Devils look with the class of 2017 in Arizona, and who are some of the targets? Well, obviously, Ryan Kelly's at the top of the list. They have five in-state commitments right now, and he's the only one that's a four-star or top 250 talent. He's he's going to be a guy that's going to compete with a quarterback start, uh, spot Excuse me, in a couple of years, obviously. They have other guys they're looking at. There's Isaiah Polamalo at uh, Mountain Point is someone that they're in on. K.J. Jarrell at uh, Saguaro. They already have three of his teammates committed. Mm-hmm. Both of those guys are four-star safety type spur-type linebackers, positions that they need to address. And there's a couple of devil prospects. Uh, and obviously Austin Jackson, then one of the top offensive linemen in the country, a, t- a true tackle with they desperately need to add. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good opportunity, I think, for them in this in this class because the, some of these guys are, are – uh, they like ASU. And, and uh, ASU's done a good job uh, connecting with them in spite of some of the coaching change. Uh, we're seeing a approach that ASU hasn't always done, which is take second-tier in-state guys in order to build the momentum of the Stay True campaign that they've been really trying to get going. When when you have Nikhil Harry, you have Chase Lucas, you have Ryan Kelly, you have a couple of offensive linemen that they've taken in the last couple of years. I think every 
drop of glass, a drop of water in the glass uh, will lead to it eventually spilling over and you being able to get those guys uh, in a flood. And, and that's kind of what they're trying to do. You can't really fault the approach in taking Corey Stevens, Jared Poplowski, Kyle Soley from Saguaro. But then again, um, there's some potential danger because you have to be able to parlay that into the K.J. Jarrells and the Austin Jacksons of this world because those are really the ultimate difference makers. And so it's just something that you have to kind of uh, it's a fine line, and figuring that out is not easy. I do think that they're in pretty good position for some of these guys, though. One of the interesting shifts, as we've talked about, is ASU going to maybe some of the lower-tier in-state guys. And Todd Graham has kind of reflected this on his staff with the additions of Conrad Hamilton, the head coach at Chaparral, and Donnie Yantis, who was at ACU and did a really impressive job, in my opinion, of recruiting local guys to go and, and play football for him at ACU as he launched that program. And so he's got – Graham ha- now has two local high school coaches who are respected on the staff. There's really a multi-pronged benefit to that. Number one, those coaches are really well-respected amongst their peers in the community. And high school coaches, junior college co- coaches know – that those guys came up through the ranks and nothing was handed to them. There's not going to be a lot of uh, angst or talking about guys and who are these people and they're outsiders and they think they know it all. You're not going to say that about Donnie Hentis and, no. and Connery Hamilton, right? And and then the other part of it is uh, ASU at, at various points in, in its history has had a phenomenal walk-on program, right? I mean, you look at... Uh, some of these guys that they've taken over the years and ended up being key contributors. Well, Donnie Yantis at Arizona Christian, his outreach and their and, and what they did signing so many kids at so many different schools, he has the cachet to be able to go to those places and be able to get guys to walk on that might take an opportunity elsewhere. And you never know, some of those guys could easily come up and end up being important players for you. There have been walk-ons to to make the ASU team of late. Earlier in this podcast, we talked about ML Harris and, and Chaz Collins looking good, and that's something that we never thought we would do three days into fall camp. Mitch Ferboni. Yeah. Yeah. Walk-on long snapper is one of the best long snappers in the country. Best NFL prospect. ML, uh, <laughs> ML, yeah, yeah. ML Harris, who we talked about, is, comes from Basha, and that, that, that might be someone that Yanis helped them get this year. And that's something that I think you will see probably – move forward see a few, few kids each year that they get in stay because he antis we will have a big premium recruiting update podcast coming your way within the next week or so but we're close to wrapping things up here on the first sun devil source podcast from the super eight studios in Payson, arizona <laughs> <laughs> super eight motel studios our, our annual stop <laughs> and speaking of annual stops this is my first trip up to Payson, arizona and i i think that we have to review our favorite spots because it's been a fun three days. We've had some really good meals. And, uh, Chris, you, you know your way around. You could give guided tours of this place. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely no Mark Brand, who's uh, ASU's <laughs> media relations director, who has spent probably about a year of his life at, at this point, no, no exaggeration, uh, coming here for 30-some years and when they used to come for up to two weeks at a time so uh but for, through trial and error we found our, our favorite <laughs> yes. kind of spots uh everyone i think goes to the wrong mexican food place in town <laughs> and, and i'm not going to say its name because i don't want to disparage but we can't say the, the name but, of the right place but the right to. place is la sierra 
uh, which is it, it, it always is, hits the spot. Uh, we went to the Buffalo Bar today for lunch. Which, uh, even though it was kind of a wait for the food, it, yeah. it, it, it was it was still pretty good, right? <laughs> Definitely high season. Everybody whenever, like everybody. The maroon and I would not recommend going there on your lunch hour. It might take a little too long. <laughs> right, but but our, I think our favorite spot and a place that we would be remiss without talking about is uh, the Double D Bar, which is in Tano Village, uh, a mile or two west of Cole's Ranch. And really in the middle of nowhere, and, and it's <laughs> a place you wouldn't like. You're not going to just happen upon this place. I mean, somebody has to tell you about it, but it's it's just a it's just an un- incredible vibe. You walk in, there's uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of hats that people have left <laughs> that make up the ceiling. Uh, the place has been unchanged since um, 19. It's 45 years. She said. Yeah, 45 years. Yeah. And, and same employees. <laughs> right. So same ownership. So e- even though the the pool tables and the shuffleboard have seen better days, <laughs> and they don't exactly roll true, and, and it's frustrating. This was when you've a had a couple of beers of and yeah. frustration. And there is no cell service there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely not AT and T cell service, but but just a great time. Um, we always go to Diamond Point Shadows, and we would have been there tonight for the fish fry on Friday, but we're heading back home uh, into town. Uh, we didn't go to Alfonso's this year, but if you really want a challenge, uh, Alfonso's <laughs> has a burrito that is no exaggeration, at least a foot long. Uh, and just massive in scale. It's a carne asada burrito. Yeah. I feel bad, Kerry, because I know you, you're like a burrito expert. I, we didn't get a chance. I to take a lot there. of pride in, in my burrito fandom. Yeah, the, growing up in San Francisco, the greatest Mexican food city, in my opinion, that you'll find eating the best Mexican food in the world. So, but Chris has showed me quite quite a few good Mexican places. Yeah, we yeah, but uh, we've enjoyed this place. Made some mistakes probably earlier coming up here and <laughs> not repeating those. So I'm only taking you guys to the good spots. Trial and error. And, yep. Uh, don't forget Gerardo's, which we hadn't gone to in a few years. It's very good. Oh yeah, Gerardo's Italian, Italian food. Yeah, and oh. they have a Dunkin' Donuts here now. Italian so. mac and cheese. <laughs> now that was a meal. Yeah, yeah, that was good. That might that have been really the best good. meal of the week. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was awesome. And we went to Mackey's. Um, for lunch one day, I think that's also one of the better Misfits. restaurants in town. Yeah, so I mean, there's a the Misfits Cafe, uh, which is a good breakfast and lunch spot. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of spots. Those will be the ones that we kind of recommend, and we'll see if uh, we're going to be up here next year to get to partake <laughs> in yeah. some of those spots. But um, but it's always a good time being up here. Well, that will do it for episode one of the Sun Devil Source Podcast and ASU Football Podcast. Once again, from the Super 8 Studios in Payson, Arizona, our first episode from the humble abode. Kevin Stewart, our recruiting analyst. Chris Cartman, publisher of SunDevilSource.com. I am your host and editor at SunDevilSource.com, Kerry Crowley. It has been a pleasure. Much more coming your way in the next few weeks from ASU Football Camp as the countdown to the Northern Arizona season opener has begun. Today's music was provided by Matt Anduho.